we go. All right. Good to see you, and um, so glad you're here. And if we haven't met, my name is Brian Habig, and I'm one of the pastors here. That was Jake Patton, another one of our pastors that was leading us this morning, is leading us this morning. Uh, we're picking back up where we left off last week. We're looking at the life of David this spring and uh, started back in the winter. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. That's what I'm going to be um, preaching from. Let me, uh, let me start off with a quote here. This is a, a quote from a letter by Martin Luther. I walked off. I printed it off and I walked off without it at my house. So I have to read this off my phone. This is a smartphone. It actually has a screen on it. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. Um, I can talk to you later about how to buy one if you have never heard of this before. But this is, a, this is from a letter that Martin Luther wrote to a friend in 1544. And apparently what he picked up on was this friend was despondent about um, sins and failures in his life. And, um, but to Luther, it sounded like the, what you're telling me really isn't even a big deal yet. And so here's what, he, here's what he wrote in his letter. And Luther got some things wrong, but he got a lot of things right. And this is right. In his letter, do not let your sin stick in your mind, but get rid of it. Quit your despondency, which is a far greater sin. Therefore, my faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are the real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ to seem paltry and trifling to us, as though he could be our helper only when we want to be rid of imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no, that would not be good for us. He must rather be a Savior and Redeemer from real, great, grievous, damnable transgressions and iniquities, yea, from the very greatest and most shocking sins. And what I want you to hear in this passage is when David joined that company. And here's the interesting thing. Luther, you know, would be very quick to point out, we're already in that company. But that doesn't mean that you've experienced it. It doesn't mean that you've really felt it on your insides. But when you, ex- when you kind of have what I've heard called a, a self-quake, that's when you join the company. And this is the passage when David really joined that company. We're picking back up where Tim left off last week. Tim preached on, uh, Tim Udodge, uh, our other pastor, preached on a very famous passage. It's when David uh, committed adultery, impregnated another woman, someone else's wife, killed that woman's husband, and th- then did not deal with it. And that's where we pick back up. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger 
was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've mentioned, I think, several times from up front that I love the story A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And we, uh, we have a film version of it in our family. We watch it every Christmas and love to reread it. And I think it's a pretty familiar story to a lot of you. Do you, do you if you've read it or seen it, do you remember the part, two parts actually, Early in the story, when you're just first getting to learn what Scrooge is like, and um, he's, he's left his office, he's on the way to do business, and he's approached by two men on the street, and they're, uh, they're raising funds for the poor. You know, it's Christmas time, and they're raising money for a charity. And Scrooge asks what it's about, and he says, one of the men says, well, we're trying to, during this time of giving, to provide for the poor, give them some basic comforts and, and meat and drink. And Scrooge says, uh, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? You know, we we pay for these things. Do do, do they not have that? And the man says, no, we still have those. They're they're in full vigor. And Scrooge is relieved to hear that. And he he walks off and he gives nothing. And then later in the story, you know, he's visited by the the three spirits. And and the, the, the ghost of Christmas present, who's very jovial, But at the end of his time with Scrooge, he takes him to this really like desolate, frightening, dark part of London. And he he shows him people just living in grinding poverty and exposed to the cold. And then at the end, the ghost of Christmas present says, look at me. 
and he pulls back his robes, and there are these two children. And Dick, Dickens' description of these children is just ghoulish. He says they, they look more like animals, and they're skeletal, and they're frightening. And the ghost says their names are ignorance and want. And Scrooge is frightened by them, and he wants them to go away. And he asks the ghost, is there nothing that can be done for them? Aren't there any resources for these children. And do you remember what the ghost said? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And it's just that, that dagger of your own words exposing you. Now, have you ever had an experience like that? I don't mean an experience with a spirit. But I mean, have you ever had your own words come back at you like a grenade? Have you ever had a child quote your words back to you, you know, like a parent, for instance, and you don't have to be a parent. It could be, you could be a teacher, you could be a babysitter, whatever. It could be a niece, you know, quoting your words back to you, but children remember. And sometimes like a parent who feels so on top of things to say, hey, we need to obey quickly and cheerfully. And then the parent's having a bad day. And then maybe the child looks up at mom and says, you know, we should obey God cheerfully and quickly. And the mom feels like saying, shut up. (laughs) Because number one, she didn't want to hear that. And number two, she has been what? Exposed. And here's the thing, and I'm going to say this again later in a bit, but when God brings something into our lives, and exposes us, especially when he, he lets our own words expose us. But even when like we're caught or it, it comes out into the light, it, it just feels awful. It doesn't feel like God's love. And it's, it's God's love when he does that. Um, Michelle Goldsmith for our assurance of, of uh, the gospel. She read Psalm 32, and, and it doesn't say this before the psalm, but it's about 99% sure that David wrote that after this incident. And in one translation, what he says is, when I kept silent, in other words, when I kept silent about my sin, I didn't deal with it, I didn't confess it. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away inside of me. And, and I want to think about th- this passage in terms of this is when the silence was interrupted and when it ended. And so that's, that's how I like to look at it. Let's, let's think in terms of David has impregnated a woman who's not his wife, who has used, you know, means. He doesn't actually use the sword himself, but he's used means to kill her husband, a man named Uriah the Hittite, one of his absolute best soldiers. You learn that from elsewhere in the Bible. One of his elite, like special forces soldiers has him killed and doesn't deal with it. What's it like when God interrupts the silence? And what's it like when the silence ends? Um, and and I, let me say this too. There's different people mentioned in this passage uh, Bathsheba's not mentioned by name, but she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so implicitly, there's Uriah the Hittite. There's Nathan the prophet. But really, there are two main characters in this passage. There's David, and there's the Lord. 
And uh, this may sound like I'm stating the obvious, but it's important to say, in the Scriptures, God is never presented like an, an abstraction or like he's just sort of a force. He is a personal, relational God. So it's David and the Lord. Let's look at that. So what's it like when the silence is interrupted? Um, Look at the beginning of the passage and think about what the Lord does here. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And you know, we're at a disadvantage because we just got this passage in the bulletin. But think about the way this was written is there's no verses, there's no chapter divisions. And here's what you just heard if you're reading 2 Samuel straight through. The verb that's all through what we call chapter 11 what Tim preached on last week, is the verb sent. It's used 12 times in that chapter. Uh, someone, you know, uh, someone sends for Bathsheba, and then she sends a message that I'm pregnant, and they're sending, and send Uriah into battle, and the message comes back that he's dead, and sent, sent, sent. 12 times in that chapter. And then you get to the beginning of this one, and this is the last time the verb is used, and what does it say? What does it say when David cannot and will not extract himself from the silence. The Lord sent Nathan to David. That's the last time that verb is used in this narrative. He's the, and I, this would be an interesting discussion for community groups is when we, I mean, to compare, and this is personal, but to compare notes about when I was doing wrong or had done great wrong, and I knew I had, and I didn't want to deal with it, and I didn't want to talk to God about it, I didn't want to talk to maybe the person I need to talk to about it, and I wasn't dealing with it, and then God forced the issue somehow in my life. When I could not extract myself from the silence, he interrupted it. And that's what happens here. And so so how is it interrupted? The Lord sends Nathan. Does Nathan come in and say, you have broken the law of God, and here's your punishment. He does something subversive. He does the same subversive thing, actually, that the Lord Jesus did in his ministry. He told a parable. And he doesn't come in and say, hey, I've got a parable to tell you. He just starts. David may have actually thought this was a real case, but all the cues seem to be that it's a parable. He comes in and just says, you know what, there's a, there, there are these two men. One's rich, one's poor, one's got a lot of sheep, and, and one has just this, this one little one. Now, there's so many things that are brilliant about this parable, but let me just point out one. What did David do before he was king of Israel? He was a shepherd. And I mean, like, he knew what it was to be a shepherd where that's not just like your day job, but to live in the fields, to live with the sheep. He has to have known what it was like when, say, here's this young little ewe lamb. It's just like a newborn lamb, and maybe a wolf kills the mom, kills the sheep. And so he just really has to, like, nurse it and care for it almost like a child. He knew what it was like to go to bat for this little vulnerable lamb. Putting that in this parable is just brilliant. And and what do good parables do? They go past your defenses that you've got up, and they go to your heart. And so this story went to his heart. Um, What does David do when he hears the story? I won't rehash the story. You, You heard it. But what does he do? He explodes. And you can tell he exploded because what's the first thing he said? The, the first thing he, he 
talks about is not repayment. What was the first thing he said? That guy deserves what? To be executed. Now, if you look in the law of Moses, it says if you steal somebody's sheep, that's not a capital offense. You're not executed if you steal somebody's sheep. But that's what he feels. It just infuriated him. Then he kind of catches his breath. And what does he say? Now, I want you to see this. Look, verse 6. After he says, that guy ought to die, kind of t- takes a breath. Verse 6. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, where did he get that figure? And I want you to look under the passage, this verse in italics. This is taken from the law of God. Exodus 22, 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sell it, sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but the king of Israel was required to have his own copy of the law of God. And we're used to having our own copy of Scripture, but that, like, Israelites didn't have their own copies. But David had his own handwritten copy of the law of Moses, and he was supposed to study it and review it for his own life, his own obedience, and to know how to judge and to lead and to, and to set the example. This guy took this other guy's sheep and, and, and uh, killed it, cooked it from memory, in real time, off the cuff, he nailed it. From memory, he knew the law of God and he applied it. He applied it to somebody else. And that's when the Lord speaks. The parable opens his heart. And his anger's kindled. Goes that kind of guy deserves to die. That kind of guy showed no pity. He needs to obey the law of God. And then what does God say through Nathan? You are the man. You are the man. Uh, that must have been a devastating moment. And, it's, and actually, that's just two Hebrew words. You, the man. And then it says this. Now, again, this is, it, this is going to feel like God hating him. This is God loving him. But what does he say to him? Ver, look at verses 9 and 10. Why have you, and this is God's assessment of what David's been doing, why have you despised the Lord? Verse 10. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Look down in verse 14. Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. And, and, and don't you know, if someone who knew the secret about Bathsheba, if someone had come to, to David during that time and said, why do you hate God right now? Don't you know he would have said, what, who said anything about hating God? I love God. I'd be a fool to hate God. But what does God expose? When you did that, I don't care what you say. Because I understand your heart. I understand your heart better than you understand your heart. When you did that, you despised me. That Hebrew word is the same word that was used earlier in Samuel for when Goliath saw David and just hated him when he saw him. And God says, that's what you did to me. 
Now, let, let's, let's hit the pause button for a second and look at ourselves. L- let me say this first off. Uh, you know, I think we all know, and, and not just Christians talk about this, that we all need to do self-evaluation. We all need to look at our lives and take stock of our lives, whatever way you do that. And when you do that, you need to ask yourself questions. And you've probably heard like good self-evaluation questions, good diagnostic questions. Let me offer us a diagnostic question. If and when I interact with Scripture, whether that's once a month or every day, if and when I interact with Scripture, when I look up from Scripture, what am I most upset about? Because if the answer is someone else, that is, that is a gauge that means you're in a bad, you're in a bad zone. Like when, when I look at Scripture, and the big takeaway for me is I cannot believe they've, they've taken prayer out of the schools. Or I can't believe the gay agenda in this country. Or I can't believe the liberal media. Or I can't believe the conservative media. Or I can't believe talk radio. Or I can't believe socialists. If you interact with God's Word and you look up from it, and the big problem is this thing out there. And I'm not saying that there aren't things out there that we're not supposed to be upset about. We are supposed to be upset about injustice. And everything from the Psalms to Jesus and the Gospel says we're supposed to be the people that cry out for justice to be done. But at a heart level, what are we most upset about? If the answer is what they did. What they're doing or in marriage. I know everyone here is not married, but many are. In marriage. If the big takeaway when I look at God's word is, yep, and she doesn't do that either. Or he doesn't do that either. And that's the main thing I'm upset about. Be alarmed. In real time, from memory, David could apply the law of God to others, and he hasn't dealt with murder or adultery in his own life. That's what we're like. And here's the other thing, and I've already said this, but I just I want to say it again. When God interrupts our silence, and that can look like being caught, being caught is awful. It's not like being caught, you know, skipping school or your hand in the cookie jar. You get to be 40-something, 50-something, the stakes are a little bit higher when you get caught. When you get caught, when somebody uh, accidentally gets the wrong text that you meant for somebody else, somebody sees the website, someone finds out how you've been mishandling receipts, and it comes out, it feels like God hates you. And you know what the reality is? That is him loving you. That's him interrupting the silence because you cannot extract yourself. We can't extract ourselves. And he's caring for you. Well, that's the, that's the silence interrupted. What about when it finally just comes to an end and the silence is broken? Well, first, verse 13 And again, over and over in this narrative, when it comes to a key moment in Hebrew, it's just two words. When Bathsheba sent the word that I'm pregnant, two words. 
when Nathan confronts David, you're the man, two words. Verse 13 in Hebrew, when David speaks, it's just two words. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And can we look at a couple of things just about that, that statement, I have sinned against the Lord? First off, I think, I think if Bathsheba's relatives had been there, they would have thought, uh, keep going. Like, you sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against your wives. You sinned against this community of Israel that you're supposed to lead by example. You have sinned against a whole bunch of people. And that's true. But when David's heart is sort of blown open, where does he go first? First and foremost, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's really critical to understand that. If you were here last week, we sang a, a psalm that we know he wrote after this, Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, David says, against, speaking to God, against you and you only have I sinned. And again, I think Bathsheba's family would have said, no, it was not only against God. It was against us. It was against hers, against your own family. But what is David saying? At the end of the day, you sin against God. And man, like that sounds obvious and it's not obvious because think about um, whether you are single or married or divorced or whatever. You think about when you have conflict with a person and you know I'm using biblical categories here. You know that you have sinned against that person. Like you have not loved that person as you love yourself. You've lashed out in anger or you've lied or whatever, attacked. At that moment, it seems like the number one party that I need to apologize to is that person. And biblically, that's not true. And I'm not saying that to diminish the importance of, yeah, there's, there's unfinished business with that person where we need to own our own fault. But the number one party that we are to address when we hurt others is God. Uh, is anyone in the room who's under 10 years old? I see a few. If you're under 10 years old, I want to speak to you for a second. And I'm actually going to be talking to your mom and dad, too, if they'll listen carefully. But I want you to think about, like, when you have a squabble with your brother or your sister, and maybe mom or dad says, now, look, you need to apologize. And so you go over to your brother or your sister, and you say, I'm sorry. And you don't want to say it, but, like, you say, I'm sorry. And then when you say it, you kind of feel like, okay, that's over. Do you know what? That's a good thing to do to say, I'm sorry. But the number one person that we need to say sorry to is the Lord. And sometimes we never get around to doing that. He's the main one that we need to talk to, even though we need to talk to that brother or that sister. Moms and dads, can you connect the dots on your own lives? That we sin against the Lord. And like, like David, we would say in that moment, it's not like I hate him. It's not like I despised him. It's not like I scorned him. And it's the love of God to come to us and say, I know it doesn't seem that way to you, but I'm telling you what's true. At that moment, yes, you did. 
Yes, you do. Less traffic in honesty. Um, but here's the second thing, <clears throat> and, I, and I've talked with several people about this this week as I've been studying and thinking about it, is that I don't think this has really hit me like, like it's hit me getting ready for today, is that when we hear David said, I've sinned against the Lord, I think we hear it like what we do in confession, that we say, Father, we have sinned against your law. We've broken your commandments. Have mercy on us. David knows the law of God. He has that copy What does the law of God say about adulterers? Look at the other passage. Because David would know this from memory. Leviticus 20 verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And we can't say that we know exactly what David's thinking or feeling, but I would assume, because he knows that, that he is anticipating God through Nathan or someone else saying, The king and the wife of Uriah the Hittite are to be executed. It is is an expensive confession. But what else can he do? Because his heart's been opened up. Then what does God say to him through Nathan? Um, If you hear nothing else, will you please hear this part? Now, I've got a friend that lives a couple of streets up from me, and he said that, His dad used to say this to him growing up. He'd be explaining something around the house, and he'd say, Son, if you'll just listen to what I'm saying right now, it's like I'm giving you a $20 bill. (laughs) Like, if if you will just listen to how to, like, work this drill, it's like I'm paying you $20 right now if you'll just listen. Honestly, not because of me, but because of the truth that I'm about to share with you, if you will listen, it's like I'm giving you $10,000. We tend to make the consequences of sin and the guilt of sin and the punishment that that guilt deserves into one thing, and there are two things. When you learn how to parse them out, it will help you. What, let, let, me flip, let me flip the order. What does God say about consequences? And I'm not going to go into detail. He says they're going to be terrible. You use the sword of the Ammonites to kill the guy you want to get rid of, the sword will never depart from your house. It's going to be bad. Um, You took someone else's wife when you had all these other wives. Your neighbor, which actually ends up being one of his sons, is going to lie with your wives in the broad daylight. And it's going to be terrible, and it is. And the child's going to die. And that could be a whole other sermon, but just suffice it to say, the child's going to die. Please read the rest of this chapter and read about David fasting for him and praying for him. And then when the child dies, he worships God, which is so interesting. Because when you're trying to use God, if you fasted and prayed to use God and he didn't give you what you want, you'd lash out at him. But after David's heart has really been dealt with, when the child dies, he worships God. Because God is God. Those are consequences. Consequences are not uniform. But the way God made the world is when we disobey him, when we go our own way, you'll feel it in your life. Does every person feel it the same way for the same action? No. That's in God's hands. Sometimes you tell a lie and maybe there's just kind of some mild ripples. Sometimes you tell a lie and it blows the whole situation apart. But there's consequences. And when you go through painful consequences, it can feel like 
God hates me. That's just how he made the world. It's supposed to be a world filled with righteousness. When there's unrighteousness, there's problems. But what about guilt and the punishment that we actually deserve? What's the first thing God says? First thing he says after he confesses his sin. The Lord has put away your sin. And just in case you're wondering if you're about to be executed, you shall not die. And, and guys, I, 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 I can't say how you think or feel right now, but I think we kind of hear that like, I think when we're, when we're dealing with the painful consequences in our own lives and God comes along and says, I can, I can take away your guilt, we sort of feel like, okay, yeah, great, blah, blah, blah. I need to deal with this. Uh, believe me, the death of a child, the wars <laughs> and battles and, and strife that David lived through, the, the debacle of his family, family life, that was unpleasant. It's not the wrath of God. But what we deserve is the wrath of God. And the Old and the New Testament are just uniform on that. And, and what, is, what does God say? You could translate this in Hebrew, not the Lord also has put away your guilt, but the Lord himself has put away your guilt. And man, that is the New Testament in one phrase. That David, you can't understand this right now, but God himself is going not to sweep your guilt under the rug. He is going to take the guilt off you and put it on himself and fall under the wrath of God so that it doesn't have to fall on you. I mean, this is, and the psalm that Michelle read, Psalm 32, is quoted by the Apostle Paul when he writes the book of Romans to say, do you you understand how unbelievable the grace of God is that he can lift your guilt off you and put it on his son and punishment falls on him. Guilt is dealt with on him and you are accepted in love. And he quotes David's psalm to say, that's how it works. Because that is how it works. And, and I'll just say this in closing. I, I, I just always wonder what's in the room. And I don't mean that I'm, I'm trying to dig it out of you. I'm just saying, I, like, I wonder who in the room has, has murdered someone. I wonder who in the room has impregnated someone and no one else knows it. Except you and that person. I wonder who is still, is addicted to a substance or addicted to porn, but you're so highly functional that almost no one around you knows it. Or whatever the secrets are. And here's the thing. God is in the business of redeeming big sinners. Big sinners. Don't be silent. But end your silence and go to him. He says, come to me. And have your sins washed away. And I'll end with this. I um, went with a friend and a member of our church to, to drug court several months ago. And there was a speaker there who himself had, had um, battled addiction. And re- his life had really, really been transformed. But uh, something he said that really stayed with me. He said, you know what? This guy was just a great speaker. He said, I thought that I was really different. I 
thought I was really different and then my addiction was really different. And you know what I came to find out? That I was just unaddict. There's a lot of wisdom in that. But every, every person in this room is special. Your background, your body, your soul, your emotions, your likes and dislikes, your background. Everyone in here is incredibly unique. You are special. But you know what? You are a sinner. And I am a sinner. Don't be prideful about your sin. Like, well, my sin is just so dark. And this thing I did is so awful that God can't work with me. You, you want to hear good news? You are a sinner. You are a sinner. How happy the man, the woman is who breaks their silence and goes to him and says, have mercy on me. And he removes their guilt and can be trusted even as you wait through consequences. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, please.